Tesla is a very great, fast company. It's heavily results-oriented, so continually finding the next solution. One of the things that I did inspect that's been really cool is actually doing first principle analysis. So their big thing is that we are a first principles company. So taking a problem, seeing what the first principle, so going back to like even... I've seen people do free body diagrams at work, which I thought was crazy. But just going back to like really fundamental concepts that we learn in school, applying it to these huge problems and then trying to solve it as fast as possible. Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world with your hosts, David Yeh and Puneet Upadhyay. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention that we created a free professional development guide for MSCs, which you can find in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's get started. Hey, everyone. So we're doing things a little different in today's episode. Instead of focusing on one topic like we usually do, we asked our listeners what they'd like to hear more about and pulled together some questions and topics that we can provide our own perspective on given our MSE-related experiences the past five years. David and I have been best friends since the summer of our freshman year. And one interesting thing is that while we've been in a lot of the same classes and even clubs, we've had pretty vastly different experiences in terms of internships, research, and, and leadership experiences. And I believe those internship and research experiences span six different industries. So we can kind of tackle some of these questions from different viewpoints. So if you end up liking this episode, feel free to submit more questions via the contact us page on our website. It's a materialworldpodcast.com. Or if you're watching on YouTube, leave a comment below and we can do another one of these soon. All right. So the first question is, what is your advice on getting your first internship without much professional experience? Yeah, um, I would definitely say that getting your first internship is always the hardest one. It's how you kind of break into it. And then after that, everything kind of falls into place. Relatively speaking, (laughs) I would just say that uh, without much professional experience, the main ways that you can show a company that you're valuable as an addition is one, a culture fit. Usually when they hire freshmen, they are not looking for technical knowledge or looking for culture fits. Is this someone we want to teach? Uh, I think that's a really important part. And so most of the interviews you're going to have are behavioral rather than technical. So I'd say that's my first big one. And the second big one is you can get experience elsewhere. So through clubs and also research would be big ways to step up your game to get to a level where you can compete against some people that have some experience. And then again, just being a good culture fit and showing that you're willing to learn more in a professional setting is always important for when you're trying to get an entry-level job. And then as you build up experience, uh, then you can kind of tailor, tailor your resume to whatever job you're looking for. Yeah, for sure. And maybe we can talk about how we got our first internship experiences as well. The one thing I'd add to that is networking plays maybe a bigger role in nabbing your first internship. So for me, like David and I, we were both in a MSC research scholarship program and that was sponsored by Solve for me. It was an industry sponsor. And after the conclusion of that nine months or 12 month program, a representative from Solve came to talk to us as we presented our 
posters. And so we had a, gr- a great conversation. I followed up via email, got, got his business card, asked him if, you know, we can grab lunch the next time he's on campus. And, you know, a year or two later, still just kind of kept in touch with him and eventually emailed him just attaching my resume and saying what I enjoyed about the company, my past experiences. And he actually ended up, this was Dr. George Corp, and he ended up being the president of Solvay Specialty Polymers. And I didn't even know at that time. And so he forwarded my resume along to the project managers at the company. And, you know, when someone gets your resume from from the president, then it's usually like pretty sought after. It's it's (laughs) a pretty good endorsement, right? So um, that ended up working well for me. I had like a pretty like straightforward interview. It wasn't anything even like behavioral or anything. It was just like getting to know each other. And that ended up leading to an offer. So I would say networking goes a long way. Just continue to build relationships. Even like as you're doing research, I definitely support what David said or getting leadership experience at clubs, just continue to build relationships with people and and it'll pay dividends in the long run. Yeah. I think that's great. Also that reminded me of just you make connections not only for where they are now, but where they are in the future. <laughs> so surrounding yourself with the right people. I think that's great. I think many of my friends have gone to do great things and just building the relationships by your peers and then linking each other up when you become specialized in one area or the other, uh, I think is always like a really good way to network. Don't go after the president. <laughs> go after someone below him that you are more comfortable talking to and building a relationship. And then if you believe in them, they can grow as well as you try to grow yourself. And so you guys can grow a more beneficial as both of you move up your respective companies. But yeah, the networking uh, helped me play a role in my internship. I did research from the same program with my professor and then my professor knew a CEO of a startup company in California, which is where I went to intern. And so that was also an expedited uh, interview process where the CEO just gave my resume to the head of R&D. And he's like, okay, yeah, let's meet up and talk. And then that's how I got my first internship. Yeah, that's awesome. So it's, it's really cool to see how that first research experience, it was the experience plus the connections that came from it too that led to maybe our first industry experience. And I totally support that. I think if you're trying to get an internship in your freshman year, your sophomore year, then it's also worthwhile to look for companies that invest in younger students too. So the first one that comes to mind, honestly, is GE Aviation. They have a great investment into like potential leadership development, things like that through their rotational programs and their internship programs. And I'm sure there's other larger companies as well, maybe like a Texas Instruments or maybe like Applied Materials that also do a similar thing. So you can try to look for those companies where there's a a greater likelihood of them taking a shot at you, taking a flyer and investing in you. So yeah, I would also just do some research on what companies you're interested in and which ones have like rotational programs and built up internship programs too. I agree. I think rotational programs are a great indicator that they care about young talent. Mm -hmm. And so if a company has a rotational program, that most likely means they also care about their interns. So I think that's a great indicator. Yeah, for sure. And GE Aviation is like my second internship, but I think what David was saying about building relationships around you with peers that also have like great potential to like rise together. I think that's really important too, because, you know, one of our good friends, Tom, your previous like 
co-host of this podcast, he definitely helped me with this interview process and setting up connections too. He was like, hey, go to this networking event and talk to these people, right? And then meet them at the career fair, then meet them at, at this event too. And that ended up leading to interviews and eventually an offer. So yeah, just continue to set up relationships and meet new people. And I think that that really goes a long way alongside building your leadership experience and getting some research experience under your belt too. Yeah, I think that's some really good points of emphasis. There's always going to be more depending on your specific search, but having those in mind as you go forward will at least give you the framework to set up for success. So our next question is, a listener is wondering our reason for choosing to get a master's degree. We're both in the five-year accelerated BSMS program. And do we plan on stopping here or getting our PhD? I think this is a really great question for when you choose for higher ed, what exactly your goal is. I sat down with my PI, uh, which is basically the professor I do research with, and we talked and he asked me what my goal is. And basically he put it out bluntly. He's like, do you want to go to industry or do you want to try to understand the fundamental science of how we interact with our world? So what he meant by that was for PhD, you can do research in undergrad and other things, but for PhD, you're basically trying to break down how the laws of physics work with a new body system. It's nothing really overarching like, oh, I want to make a new system. It's no, I want to understand the kinetics or I want to understand the thermodynamics of specific systems in a greater detail. So it's much more theoretical and intense work. So you have to really enjoy research and really want to enjoy the intrinsic properties of materials or any field. So it's a really big step up from what research you could do before. The reason why I chose to get my master's in staff was because first off is that it's an accelerated program. Um, if it wasn't for if <laughs> for our audio only listeners, our, um, um, cat came into the into the screen so <laughs> but yeah so the reason why i stopped at masters was because for my goal is that i want to do research development in energy storage or elsewhere but to do r&d most of the times to move up in any meaningful way you need a next level of education so msbs was adding one year which was extremely valuable just from my growth standpoint so that was something that my professor made clear is that you have to weigh the benefits and the cons is that currently I'm in the energy storage field, which is extremely hot. Like all the companies are hiring like mad. And so is it worth me delaying my graduation by a year to get my master's? And so you have to be conscientious about exactly what you want to do and exactly how each step of the plan can help. Because I know a lot of people who get a PhD or a master's and then end up never using it. And so while the extra education looks nice, it's really should put, supposed to be focused about what you want to do in the future. Right. Or do you plan on getting your PhD or do you plan on stopping with your master's once you get that? I think my master's, my end goal is to always get to industry. So a master's will help me reach my goal of R&D in a industrial setting and allow me enough upward movement to where I would be happy. Potentially in the future I could, but right for right now, I'm going to stop and not get my PhD. I think we're, we're in the same boat there. And I don't even know if we talked about this like off camera or anything like that, but I had a similar path or similar like conversation with my research professor too. And 
it was literally just like a 15, 30 minute conversation about like what it is I want to do. And this BS MS program in and of itself, a five-year program, just the additional year is a good ROI. So like it has one year extra on school, but it technically counts as like two years of experience. A master's counts as an additional two years of experience when you're looking at, at jobs. And I believe also, you know, I'll, I'll let you know if this is not true in, in like the medical device industry, but like a master's degree, it can accelerate your, like how quickly you rise up the ladder and also, you know, raises promotions, things like that. So with all of that, I, I knew from, I think my second year that I wanted to go into the industry. And I think that's something that for our listeners, I highly recommend just really trying out both settings, doing research and also trying out different internships too. Um, if I had more time, maybe I would try like more research lab settings because, you know, one experience might not be sufficient, but just from what I got from our research scholarship program, and I just realized that wasn't the, the lifestyle for me. I wanted maybe more of like the team collaboration and being able to make more immediate impact. And I think my internships were a lot more reflective of what my ideals were and what my ideal lifestyle was. So yeah, that's why I plan. I just got my master's. I graduated um, this past year and I don't plan on getting my PhD, but there is potential for maybe to go and get my MBA at some point. So another advanced degree. So I would recommend getting a master's, especially if you have like a BSMS program of sorts. Um, I think it's, it was worth it for us too, in terms of even if we wanted to go into the industry, that kind of sets us up for faster growth in that field. Yeah. The, the one caveat to the BSMS program, I think we've talked a lot about strengths are one that if you do plan on getting a PhD, it doesn't really look like a master's to a PhD board. It doesn't help you out with further education. Everything really helps out with industry. So just know that if you do want to go to PhD, it's probably not the best program for you. And the second thing is that there will be, it's, you're not going to get the same experience as if you get a master's. So normally you would skip on a thesis and you would skip on other things that you would be able to do in the master's. So just there are a lot of benefits with the shortened time and the uh, overall benefit to job, but there are there are also a few drawbacks of uh, MSBS rather than a master's. I totally agree with that. We can move on to I guess this is this next question is kind of a loaded question, but something that I wanted to go over since it took me quite a while to figure out, and that's how did you find your passion as an MSC because it is such a versatile field. There's a lot of different pathways you can pursue, so it's maybe sometimes more difficult to find what exactly you're passionate about within this space of material science and engineering. All right. So this one was, I guess, a decision that was maybe like five years in the making. And it really like, I know it's a tough answer, but finding your passion just automatically relies on trying new things. And the additional component of that is continuing to reflect and reflecting consistently on what you liked about various experiences and what you didn't like. And that's not just internship experiences in different industries. That's also research experiences. That's also leadership experiences as well. So for me, I had research experience in, in batteries. I like different components, but I guess the 
the energy storage space for me was not exactly what I was looking for. I guess I, I always knew I wanted to make an immediate impact on like people and helping people in need. And so even in high school and college, I guess I, I had these dreams of just like, how do I put it? You know, like nanotechnology, creating nanobots to destroy cancer cells. Like that was literally like the driving factor in me choosing material science and engineering. And I don't know why it took so long to eventually get some healthcare experience, but it took a Solvay internship experience, a GE aviation internship experience, and finally like our capstone project that David and I worked on, which was actually in medical devices and working with Emory to create like a drape to facilitate the CPR process and improve the resuscitation rate. And that's what really like clicked with me is the opportunity to assist people in need and help from the healthcare perspective, but also my leadership experiences were something I really enjoyed. I was really passionate about building organizations from the ground up and empowering others. And so that's also something that came into play is choosing uh, the industry space and specifically medical devices, because it was an opportunity to develop as a leader and then also get to help people in need. And so that combined, I guess, is what I'm passionate about within MSE. And there's a lot of ways I would say, I would wrap this up by saying there, you can have multiple passions and you don't just have to have like one job that fits that passion. So you can have side projects as well. And it doesn't necessarily have to relate to material science, but we get to have the pleasure of, you know, hosting this podcast and meeting amazing people too, in addition to working our internships or our full-time jobs. As a summary, just you'll you'll know it when you find it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just just trying it out and doing it. Like uh, Panice was saying is that I did a bunch of different internships and my first one was in energy storage. And then I basically swore off all batteries and like batteries are stupid. <laughs> and then I went and worked at two different companies over a couple of years. And then in the end, now I'm finally back in energy storage. Like, oh yeah, you know what? Batteries are actually pretty cool. <laughs> so, I mean, you're going to evolve as a person over your time in college. So your passion, your first year might not be the passion, the fourth year. And so just like you said, getting a lot of experience, reflecting on the experiences, and then aligning how you want to apply yourself in the future is really kind of how you find your passion. And yeah, you'll just know when you feel it. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. And I would also say there's an additional thing you can do, which is just talking to people who have done other experiences that you haven't taken part of. So like different roles within a specific industry or different industries altogether, just talking to them, hearing more about what it is they do on a day-to-day basis, what, what they loved about it, what they didn't really like about it. And that's kind of like a cheat code or like an additional, maybe like shortcut instead of trying out everything, which you, you just don't have time for, but you can talk to them, take notes. And then after just like reflect on if that clicked with you, if, if that type of role is something you think you would really enjoy, or if it's just not your speed. Right. So I think that's an additional thing that you can do to see like what you really click with and also just like rule out things that you don't want to do. I, I wish it was an easy answer or a solved <laughs> problem, but it, it's just trying to get as much information as possible and then making the best informed decision. For sure. 
All right. So the fourth question, uh, I think this was your question, David, actually, or something you wanted to comment on. And that's, what does it take to get published? So yeah, the main reason why I asked this was going into college, basically as an academic, uh, one of my goals was to try to get a paper. And so as a freshman, it's kind of difficult to know where you stand. After talking to other people, it's also hard to know when you contribute to a project, what does that entitle you to? So I just wanted to kind of talk about my experiences and talk about not how to, but what it looks like and how to go about conversations where you might feel uncomfortable. And so the first big thing is, of course, you have to join the lab. And then when you join a lab as a freshman, you'll probably join a project with a graduate student or a PhD student. And so by basically talking to them and talking with them about what they need help with, what type of testing they need help with, other parts of their project where they need work done is how you eventually get published. David, real quick, before you get into what it takes to get published, maybe you can let us know, like, what are the benefits of getting published? Like, what, why is that a driving factor for uh, students in research to kind of seek getting their name as an author on these research papers? Sure. So number one benefit would definitely be for if you want to get any higher education, papers are what you are going to be producing as a master's or PhD student. So showing that you have experience, you know what the process is like, creating factual research is very important to show any committees. So even though I didn't go that route, it's still very helpful. The second one is for like research jobs or industry jobs. Research paper basically means that you took a hypothesis, use the scientific method to solve or to prove or disprove your hypothesis in a result that's interesting. And then you're able to communicate that with the general public. And so those skills are kind of universal across whatever you do. Industry just doesn't post any of their papers because they all want IP, but <laughs> it's what you're doing in your job is having a hypothesis, testing it, proving or disapproving it, and then moving forward with new insights. And so just them, the fact that you are published or are an author gives them insight into, oh yeah, this guy knows how to solve a problem, how to go about researching a problem. And so I'd say those would be the big two um, benefits. And one other thing I would say is that it shows like the results of your hard work too, like from, from a resume perspective, LinkedIn profile, something you can speak about in an interview as well. It shows that you like researched this one topic that ended up contributing to the real world and advancing in whatever industry that you you're working in whatever space you're working into. So I would just add that from the results orient, oriented perspective, you are contributing your work to the greater field and, and sharing your knowledge. Yeah, exactly. All right. I'll let you continue um, what it takes to, to get published. Some of the things that you might not think about right away. No, that, that's a really good question. And I can segue that with, that's kind of how you have to think about a paper's what's the main goal of this? And so you're going to start with a very abstract question and hone in. But basically the basic timeline is six to 12 months of work and then three months writing. And then you send it out for review. And then when you get it back, you have to do revisions. But overall, a paper takes like a year to a year and a half on average. How long does the review process take? Um, it depends. I've had one paper uh, reviewed and submitted in a month. And I had one paper reviewed and then submitted in eight months. Wow. So it can be quite the difference. The big thing is that whether or not the editors at your journal think it's conclusive enough evidence. So what they'll ask is for SI or supplementary information. 
So different material testing for my people that got delayed eight months. Uh, they wanted completely new modeling of a unit crystal. So just doing some stress calculations of evolution of stress over time is something that they wanted. And so we had to loop in another lab to do work. And so that took a long time for us to finally get, test, publish, and then resubmit. And so that's what it kind of takes. But yeah, that's like the very basic timeline. But one thing that I heard before was what entitles me to getting my name on paper. I would say if like you're doing any meaningful amount of work, that means that like you're not just like, oh, I did like one test here, one test there. If you are contributing in a meaningful way that there's no reason why your graduate or PhD student should not put you as an author. Now, it would depend on how many other people are working on it. But if you do a meaningful enough, I think you could easily get to be a second, third or fourth author on a paper with like up to eight authors or something like that. Just know that sometimes PhD students will take precedence over you as it means a little bit more to them than the undergrad. So you will get bumped as there are some politics, but just having your name out there in general is always a good thing. But now if you want to do a paper yourself and be the first author, that is a very intense process where basically you have to do background research. So read all the papers and collect sources of what is already out there. And you have to do basically all the hypothesis creation and then a testing plan. And so basically, if you do research as an undergrad, just take a step up and say, okay, well, as an undergrad, I'm doing this specific test to get this specific result. But as a PhD student, you have to understand why we're doing that test, what that result means for the overall project, and then how we take that information going forward to complete our story from our hypothesis. So I hope that kind of gives insight into what it takes to be published, but getting published is not something you can just like say, yeah, like I'll just do it. It takes a lot of work and dedication and lots of hours in the lab to get anywhere close to producing anything worth publishing. What advice would you have for the the situations? Because it, it doesn't always, or I, I feel like it rarely ever pans out exactly how, how you plan it out. So what strategies are there when results aren't as expected or things don't go according to plan? Your hypothesis doesn't actually work out. I mean, that is exactly why research isn't easy is because almost never does it work out the way you do. And so going to your first principles, understanding what we're trying to accomplish. Can we change material systems? Can we change testing? Can we change X, Y, Z? We take our problem and we change variables to understand how each one interacts it. And I think one of the best things about research is that even if it doesn't work, you can still write a paper about it. <laughs> learning how things don't work is almost as valuable as learning how things work. And so the main issue is that if you if something is happening, you don't know why it's happening. That's the big thing is that when it's not working like it's supposed to, understanding the basics and the physics behind the system to understand why it's not working like it's supposed to is going to get you to your paper. So just going back to your fundamentals and understanding is how you move forward in the project. And then also your PI, probably like the best resource ever. And he or she knows way more than you would ever know. So <laughs> just going to them and talking to them, uh, they'll have a lot of good ideas about next steps forward. They might not know what the answer is, but they'll know how to get the answer or at least steps that they think might help you illuminate your path. For sure. I think that's a really important point to make is that even if it 
doesn't work out exactly how you hoped it would, it still potentially warrants a paper where you can write about the root cause as long as you identify that. Um, and you can share that with the world too. So other people don't take all the time you took to identify that problem or just like create a test plan for it and see if it's worth it. Right. So yeah, I think you really gave a comprehensive view on that. I would just say that um, one thing that I wish I did with research on the paper that I got published on is like, you know, I contributed consistently to testing and, you know, creating presentations and, and analyzing my results. So that warranted getting onto a paper. What I would say is I would have, as an undergrad, at least asked to be part of the, the writing process or get an insight into that because I didn't get as much as I'd like. And that's a learning opportunity, right? Where I was placed as, I think, a fourth author on my paper, but I didn't really get too much insight into the writing of that paper. I got to review the paper at the end, offer edits, but I think it's valuable to learn what communication is like when you're writing a, a long research paper and you're contributing that to the world, right? So did you get, I think you got a chance to kind of get part of that, that process a little bit, right? With your PhD student. Yeah. I was able to write segments of like the testing protocol and other like basic, like building blocks of parts, but he did the main analysis, but yes, I did get a chance to write. And what would you say you like learned from that process from just like, I feel like writing a research paper is a lot different than, than writing just like a novel, a story, or just like your, your standard paper for school, right? Yeah. The big thing is just when you do testing protocol or anything, just you have been writing this test for like months at end at this point, but now you have to put it into Word and have someone across the world read it who's never seen your lab or your setup and then be able to try to replicate it. Right. And so being clear, concise with measurable steps is just like you skip a lot in your mind just going on an autopilot. So just taking a step back and honing in on exactly what you did is always a challenge just because like you've been doing it for months. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's easy. You just like throw it in and then you let it run when really there's a lot of other steps that people would need to know. Did you ever, like in elementary school, I remember observing this. I didn't do this myself, but we had to create like a, a protocol of sorts for making like a PB&J sandwich. I'm allergic to peanuts, so I couldn't do it. But did you ever have to do that in elementary school? No. No? No? Okay. This is a thing. I swear you can like look it up, but um, it was like, you have to write out the process of like making a PB&J sandwich and you have to do it like step by step. Then the teacher like reads through it and, and does it, but like they take it so literally. So if you don't say like, op like open the jar, for example, then they'll try to pour out peanut butter when there's like, they haven't opened the jar. Right. So it's, it's, it kind of reminds me of that where you have to kind of be clear and concise about what the steps you took. Yeah, but you kind of forget some of the what you think is obvious, but might not be obvious to someone who's reading it. Yeah, across the world. So yeah, I just thought that was funny. It's <laughs> very similar. <laughs> we can move on to another question, which is, what should you expect when joining like a makerspace or a measurement space, and where to start? And so you were the CEO of the mill, and you. So I'll let you explain what exactly that is at Georgia Tech and what your journey was like from like a staff member to the CEO. So the mill or the materials innovation and learning laboratory 
is basically just a makerspace, but specifically with MSE instruments. So we had like an XRD, SEM, FTIR, Intron, uh, 3D printers, all that were like available to like MSE students to basically give them hands-on learning before they went out to industry. For free. Uh, yeah, for free. And so I started as just a staffer, someone who worked the space. And so basic rule of thumb is just that you're going to have to dedicate like three to five hours a week coming into space, staffing it, helping other people out with their projects. So learning how to problem shoot and quickly iterate over some issues is always going to be expected. Then moving up, I then became the chief technical officer of a specific subset of machinery. So that just means that now I needed to be the subject matter experts on how to use the machine. So basically just coming in whenever it was broken or anyone had like really, really special request was just how I did it. And I really like that because I got to learn like the fundamentals behind each of the um, systems and how they worked and then apply that to my own work about like, oh, like now that I understand how the XOD like works, this is how we can use it going forward. Then I got promoted to CEO. So leading the entire space, and I would say that that was the hardest challenge yet was being an effective leader while you have other things going on. So making time, giving a clear goal, supporting people were all things I've never done before. For example, one of like CTOs, uh, CEO who called me and was like, yeah, we need to talk. And basically she, uh, she felt like she was doing like a terrible job and just needed some encouragement. And so being able to empathize, sympathize, but also give feedback and how we can improve were all skills that I never had to really do before that I got to experience in that role. And so I would just say that in a make makerspace and measurement space, it's as much as you want to make out of it. You can stay just the base level technical level, but uh, the great thing is that this is all student-run organizations. So you they do need leaders. And so you can step up to the plate and start taking more responsibilities and be able to relate that a lot to what it would be like in actual real life, working with the team, trying to get a goal, give us service to a subset of users, all things that are different than what you could get from your curriculum. And I think the cool part about it is you can, if there's equipment that you're particularly in, uh, interested in, then you can go after that. You can express it to your technical officer, whoever student leaders are existing in the organization, and they will like empower you to learn that equipment as much as possible because it benefits the organization and it benefits you too. So for me, I ended up from a staff member in my first year, I then became like the technical officer for the Leica microscope specifically. And I thought that was like a fascinating piece of equipment because it was pretty straightforward to use, but it offered a lot of opportunities in terms of you could take images over a longer period of time and you could do like a topographical topographical image and you know there's like the color coded topography of it too you can zoom in a lot you can take you know a bigger image so there's just a lot that you could do with the the instrument but what i learned is when there's so many there's so many features to it that uh, sometimes it can like break down or there's like software issues or hardware issues. David is smiling because he he dealt with it like just as much as I did. And so one thing that helped that I would recommend from that makerspace measurement space, if you develop a leadership role is to just 
create troubleshooting procedures and just continue to add to it as you go, like as you see more and more things happen, and then you incorporate that into a training protocol too. So those are the two big things that I learned is we had to revamp our training protocol to be more hands-on. Initially, it was like the trainer would just kind of show how things are done and then the trainee would observe, but you learn a lot more by doing. And so you kind of can revitalize the, the training by letting them do it and letting them make mistakes. It's totally okay to make mistakes as long as they learn from it. And then incorporating the troubleshooting procedures into that saying like, hey, if, if something happens with the microscope, you know, try these, these set things and then like check this document that's on the computer or that's like on paper and follow those steps, see if it exists. If not, then, you know, call the, the technical officer, PI, whatever. So yeah, those are the only things that I'd add, but I think joining a makerspace is super fun. It's another thing that you can do before getting your first internship that shows you have some technical skills to correspond with your soft skills that would make you a really good fit within that company. I think you made a good point about the training. I recently heard the adage, it's first I do, then we do, then you do. Mm -hmm. And that's like an effective way to teach someone a skill. So I think that's a really good point that you made about changing just like you just watching things happen. Yeah. All right. So we got a couple more questions. The next one is really just for David. It's what is it like to work for Tesla? I can't really say much about it. So I'll leave that up to you. <laughs> Are you sure? Um, no. um, I would just say I can't talk too much about it, but basically just Tesla is a very great, fast company. It's heavily results oriented. So continually finding the next solution. One of the things that I did inspect that's been really cool is actually doing first principle analysis. So their big thing is that we are a first principles company. So taking a problem, seeing what the first principle, so going back to like, even I've seen people do free body diagrams at work, which I thought was crazy, but just going back to like really fundamental concepts that we learn in school, applying it to these huge problems and then trying to solve it as fast as possible. And so I think I thought that was very interesting and also taught me a lot. One thing that I've learned in startups in general is that sometimes problems aren't worth fixing. And so if there's a problem, basically, if I found a solution, but I still don't understand why it was happening in the first place, they would say, no, that's fine. You found the solution. Who cares about the problem? It's not a problem anymore. And so just know that you won't be able to solve every single problem or understand everything, but as long as you fix it, then whatever happened before isn't an issue. And so it's just a completely different way of thinking from research is that you want to understand every single step of the process. It's really just, let's find the fastest path to a solution. And so just continually iterating. I mean, uh, there's not much more I can say, but just it's a really fast workplace and a lot of people are very passionate about what they do. And so it makes for a lot of dedicated people who are all very, very intelligent. So you can learn a lot from the people around you and your team members. Yeah, that's the one thing, even just by talking to David, is it seems like a huge growth opportunity and learning opportunity. Like you continue to learn every day. And it's cool to see, like I've read about how Elon Musk incorporates, applies the first principles into his work every day. And it's cool to see how that trickles down. And that's the identity of the company too. So that's really cool. It's uh, definitely something different and 
<laughs> he, he's just like in the back of his mind. He's trying to think about what he can say and what he can't say. But yeah, uh, thank you for that. I think that that's definitely a lot of information for, for our listeners who are interested in Tesla. <laughs> very cool company, very demanding company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, final question. Uh, maybe this is more for me, but David can add to it too. But it's what were your expectations of your first job out of college versus what is the reality of your first job? And I think the first thing that comes to mind is in college, I just assumed like as a materials engineer, there would be a lot of materials engineering jobs, like materials engineer at this company, materials engineer at this company. But that's not actually the case from what I've seen. It's a a versatile field, but I don't think in, in my perspective that the real world has caught up to the value that MSEs can provide specifically as like materials engineers. And so there's a lot of roles we can enter and not all of them incorporate like the traditional material science principles that we learn in our coursework on a day-to-day basis. Some are very much more MSE heavy, like maybe David's internship um, is, but there's roles like process engineering or like quality engineering, manufacturing engineering, where you're incorporating more of like the traditional engineering problem solving methods into your work. And then you kind of take some some bits and pieces of your knowledge of various materials or equipment, and you're incorporating that into improving existing methods. So that was like one thing that I realized is like in my role at Boston Scientific, it's not totally like MSE heavy. I get my share of MSE through this podcast really, and just like listening to other people talk about their work, which is really cool. With my work, there is some elements of it. So for example, like when, when it comes to the design of a specific like guide wire or catheter, if we want to improve it, then we can consider various materials to help improve this one specific component. I guess that's like as specific as I can get, but that's where like being a materials engineer, I was marked as like the SME for materials in our team. So there's elements to it. There's definitely ways where you can provide value in our role, but that was the difference, like in terms of what I expected going into this job world versus the the reality of it is materials engineer is a, a small subset of all of the different roles you can apply to and the different extents of using and incorporating your material science knowledge. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that the value of MSC is overlooked. Uh, one project I've had in one of my internships was easily solved in about five minutes after I looked at the solution just because they were using a polymer above its TG and wondering why it kept on moving. <laughs> and so just people don't know because it hasn't been a very big focus. And people who are more mechanically inclined just don't know about like TG and other of these material properties that basically will tell you right away what the issue is. So I think that's like a great point. And then really just thought I would know a lot more about what I was doing from school, but you learn a lot on the job and just being able to have some background knowledge about maybe like the goal of what you're doing is good, but just continually learning on the job and figuring out what's important for you to know, what's important for you to learn more about and what's important for you to grow in is all very important. Yeah, that is also a big thing is like undergrad is is very general. Honestly, you're learning a little bit about a lot 
And in your job, you're learning a lot about a very small like subset of a field. So yeah, that's a, that's a great point is you really have to just show through your undergrad career that you're very curious, you love to learn and that you can adapt to things and pick things up quickly. I think those are the big things that you can show a recruiter and that's important to a hiring manager is, are you willing to learn and can you adjust to things on the fly? Can you pick up things and just continue to learn as you go? Because they're not expecting you to know everything right out of the gate. They're just hoping that you can quickly just pick things up as you go. If you're thrown into the fire, can you adjust? Can you make it, you know? Yeah. All right. I think that concludes our Q&A. That was kind of fun to just like talk about a lot of different topics. So if you like this episode, then let us know by leaving a comment on YouTube or leaving a comment on our latest uh, LinkedIn posts. But yeah, that's it for now. And hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the It's a Material World podcast. If you enjoyed the show, consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app so you never miss another episode. David and I also created a career development guide for MSCs, which you can download for free using the link in the show notes below. If you have any feedback, we would love to hear it. We want to grow this show with our community's input, so you can message us via email or any of our social media platforms. Links will be provided in the show notes as well. We'll see you soon. And in the meantime, go change the world.